Welcome to Tech It to the Limit, the humorous and surprisingly informative podcast that makes digital innovation in healthcare as entertaining as it is relevant. I'm Sarah Harper. And I'm Elliot Wilson. And we're here to pull back the curtain on the world of digital transformation in healthcare. Don't worry, you don't need a medical degree to join in on the fun. Just a sense of humor and a penchant for all things health tech. So buckle up, folks. It's time to Tech It to the Limit. What is up, Sarah? Do you believe it? It's episode three. It's episode three, and we're still working together, and we still like each other. <laughs> well, it's I'm early speaking yet. for myself. <laughs> it's still early days, but it's all love. Is this uh, what they call the honeymoon period for podcasters? I think it is. I think if you get past the end of season one, then you're set. So Without bloodshed. <laughs> It's a good thing we're remote. Yeah, right. All right. So I am super excited to to talk our listeners about who our guest is today. And I get um, to doozy, and it was a great conversation. Who was it? Dr. Joel Gordon, CMIO, that stands for Chief Medical Information Officer of UW Health. And he also happens to be the chair of the International Council of Nerds. Look it up. Dr. Gordon is a bedside physician who has made a career out of making physicians' lives easier with tech, if you can believe it. Super excited to have him on the show and just reunite with a fellow nerd who is super passionate about health tech. I'm frankly was floored by his fashion sense. It was <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's like a, he's a god. You'll have to look at um, well, I guess it's there's no video footage. So you just have to imagine. There was so much listeners. sparkles. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to. There there was a lot of skin, you know, a lot of skin, too. I was really surprised. I said tasteful. It was tasteful. It was yeah. very tastefully done. Tasteful skin. Yeah. Tasteful farmer's tan. Sequiny, shimmery farmer's tan. All right. We digress, my friend. This episode is dubbed Back to the Future for a reason, because today we're going to be discussing top technological innovations that have left an indelible impact on humanity. I don't know if you've turned on any media source whatsoever in the past, let's say, two years, but in the age of artificial intelligence, which seems to be all we can talk about, it's important, I think, for us to pause and reflect on where we come from, our past experiences, our failures, and our mistakes, and use these lessons learned to help us chart a course for the future hopefully one that's more equitable, more productive, and less destructive than previous times. So as we prepare for today's trip down the nerd and out wormhole, I'd like to set the stage for our discussion, Elliot, if that's okay, former history major here, with a couple of harrowing quotes from fellow nerds throughout history. First, futurist and American novelist Robert Heinlein, also referred to as the Dean of Science Fiction, warned us that a generation which ignores history has no past and no future. And I'm just going to state for the record that I'm not a communist, but I do think that German philosopher, historian, and sociologist, economist, and famed revolutionary Karl Marx had some really smart things to say about humanity. 
And he warned us that history repeats itself the first time as tragedy and the second time as farce. So Elliot, with that introduction, do you want to kind of set the stage for how we're going to be laying this out for our listeners today? Like how we're going to structure this discussion? Yeah, and I'll and I'll say the the first thing I love that we're setting stages here. My undergrad is in theater. I don't know if you know that or not. I don't know if I told you that. So setting stages like feels right to me. I feel like coming home, you know. And then we're here. We're having Karl Marx talk about tragedy and farce. I mean, like this is like right up my alley. Mm. Theater is my love language. So how we're gonna kind of structure this because we we came back with so many different ideas and how. There's all these different parallels between what AI is, is like in our in our shared history as humanity. So we spread a pretty long timeline. So we figured the best way to bring this to you was to start in a timeline order and pick out our favorite moments in technological advancement and what lessons we can glean from them over time. So I think we're starting pretty far back, right? So I'm going to ask you like, where are we starting here, Sarah? Circa 2700 BC. That's before Christ, not before COVID. We're going to talk about the abacus, but also an, an invention that millennials will be familiar with, the pocket calculator, commercialized in the 1970s and made possible by Intel's microprocessor. The abacus, though, if we think back to like toddlerhood, you might have had one in your playroom. It was one of the first tools that humans used to perform mathematical calculations. And it's, you know, math, math as we know, is foundational to AI and machine learning models. That's, that's essentially what they are. And the pocket calculator introduced a flurry of ethical questions among educators about whether their students could be allowed to use them and still understand, uh, you know, the fundamentals of mathematics. So I see a lot of parallels between this scenario and the advent of generative AI tools like ChatGPT and BARD. GenAI is essentially a tool like a calculator that augments our productivity. It doesn't replace our critical thinking and analytical skills, but it can give us a starting point, help us with ideation. All that said, we have to be responsible about teaching young people, teaching ourselves even, how to think critically about the outputs of GenAI and the sources from which it's drawing information. So I thought the abacus was a good place to start. Hopefully we went far enough back in history. <laughs> it was I'm gonna, on I'm a gonna... Wednesday, I think, right? Yeah, you know, if they had Wednesdays back then. <laughs> I don't know which calendar they were using. That's true. That's true. That's yeah. very Julian of me. <laughs> so the next invention uh, on the timeline I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share as well is the compass invented between 200 BC and 100 AD, not exactly sure on the year there, but essentially enabled the age of discovery and oceanic exploration. You know, and without that, um, <laughs> you wouldn't ha have had the imperialism and the European colonization of the new world, air quotes, which really led to the accumulation of European wealth and ultimately funded the industrial revolution. So lest we forget a lot of the wealth and the progress that came out of the new worlds that funded the industrial revolution, whether it was financial or intellectual progress, came at a very high human cost. And we're still seeing that legacy of systemic oppression persist today. And I think that's something that we see as a through line for a lot of these, right, is these inventions and advancements come with the good and the bad. 
right? They are very much the double-edged sword. I think those are really great. I do remember being told that I won't ever, I won't have a pocket calculator. I won't have a calculator with me wherever I go when I need to go do these mathematic equations all the time. You know, calculating yeah, how many I'm... watermelons Bob was carrying home from the grocery store. Such a useful <laughs> question. <laughs> Hopefully just one. <laughs> Right. I mean, seriously, maybe two if if he's having a party. But, Do you, you know, remember I, like this, like the size of the calculator started to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was no longer you'd have to have like these massive pockets. for. You needed Jenko jeans in order to carry home yes, a, a graphing calculator and a giant windbreaker. That that, folks, <laughs> is why 90s fashion was so, That's so just un unparalleled. There's there's another there's another parallel though with calculators and Gen AI that I was thinking about, right? Okay. So yeah, yeah. they're also used for incredibly stupid things and to be as sophomoric as possible. <laughs> what Perfect. kind of things did we learn how to write and type on a calculator in our <laughs> as kids? Starts right? with P, ends with S. <laughs> Right. And so what do you think some of the first things done with ChatGPT were when it came oh, out? Oh, yeah. Raunch City. That's all you. I'm saying. I, I only use it for professional, you know, intellectual advancement. So 100 percent of the time, 100 percent of the time. I've never asked it to. I just don't even let's move on. <laughs> Well, all right. So those are really two really great ones. And before I settle down into a typical Eurocentric perspective about this next thing that I thought of, I just want to recognize that when I talk about the printing press, I'm leaving out a whole history of printing presses 500 years ahead of Gutenberg coming out of China. But I do want to talk about the, the printing press and Gutenberg in particular. And so for the purposes of today's discussion, that's where I'm going to focus um, because that's oftentimes we in the Western world think of it. So the printing press comes out in the early 1400s and the first Gutenberg Bible was produced in 1452. And just shy of 50 years later, and far too late to prevent the Renaissance, the Pope is then excommunicating anyone that prints manuscripts without the church's approval. And I, I think about that time and like how, you know, thought was so condensed around, you know, the church as as such a as a thought leader, as one of the only thought leaders. Well, OK, can I make a comment on the church thing, though? Yeah, I, mean, it's a, I think it's an excellent point that you're making. It's like control of information, control of knowledge. That's power. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, 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 it was it was back in 1452 and in, in era 1502. And it is today. Yeah, it's exactly right. And I see numerous parallels between the printing press and generative AI. First, and I think the most transformative, is its ability to, to democratize information and its a potential to elevate an entire citizenry. Printing Bibles in native languages allowed people to contemplate and determine their own points of view. Similarly, generative AI can allow for people of all sorts of people to unlock capability and creativity in ways they may not have otherwise even thought possible. Personally, I can't draw. For correction, you can't draw well. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I can't draw well, but I can prompt mid-journey like a boss. 
another person may not be able to do any code whatsoever, but by using Google Bard, you know, she's able to design an app that's been swishing around her brain for an entire decade. I think it's also interesting to note that we continue to see a plethora of dispersions cast on generative AI from it being a passing fad to fears of job replacement to how the content is not as rich and robust as human created content. And I think it's funny that contemporaneously there were monk scribes like Johannes Trithemius who railed against the printing press in his seminal work in praise of scribes. He wrote. Which you have read, and it's an entirety. Okay, got it. Ridiculously got it. long for okay. for somebody praising scribes, but in in his praise of scribes, he wrote, "quote The printed book is made of paper, and like paper, will quickly disappear. But the scribe, working with parchment, ensures lasting remembrances for himself and his text." End quote. Mm. Ah. Man, the guy really was pumping himself up. And I wouldn't be the first to point out the irony that his ideas were disseminated in printed texts. Yeah, that's kind of um, hypocrisy 101. And right? when you were saying, when you read that about like paper quickly disappearing, I'm wondering what, what did Trithemius wipe his butt with? <laughs> The Gutenberg you know? Bible, I mean, probably. Yeah, right. Pages from the Gutenberg Bible. This crap isn't leading to anything. This isn't progress. I'm going to wipe my tail with it. He's there throwing shade oh in the gosh. 1500s. Throwing shade. So that was one. Uh, The next one I had was like earliest. I was thinking about early wireless communication and all these inventors at the same time that were like yapping back and forth with all their kinds of different patents around this. And that wireless communication, the invention of it, made the world so much closer um, and really started off that vast globalization, that that flattening of the globe that we see now, right? From Hertz's radio waves discovery in 1886, it was only 17 years before the first transatlantic wireless communication was brought to us by Marconi. We went from Hertz quoted as saying, I do not think that the wireless waves I have discovered will have any practical application. That's my that's my 1800 scientist False humility. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> probably, probably it was like I, I probably had a publicist. Uh, he went we went from that in 1890 to this quote from Teddy Roosevelt in taking advantage of the wonderful triumph of scientific research and in- ingenuity, which has been achieved in perfecting a system of wireless telegraphy. I extend on behalf of the American people the most cordial greetings and best wishes to you and all the people of the British Empire. In 1903, as that was the first uh, transatlantic wireless communication, and it's just blarney. Can I just say that your Teddy Roosevelt sounds a lot like your Hertz? <laughs> impression you need to distinguish those a bit now (laughs) (laughs) and since then we've seen an exponential increase in long distance communication advancement and we're seeing a similar exponential increase in the use of ai and like a double-sided plow ai tills both benefits and burdens the distances spanned by marconi help us shed light on dark parts of the world we can better coordinate disaster recovery for instance Simultaneously, in such instantaneous communication gives swift wings to propaganda and disinformation and eats away at our dwindling attention spans. 
I don't know if anyone knows all the way AI will be both a blessing and a curse, but at least people seem to be taking this potential seriously. The, the question is, are we considering it fast enough? A century ago, it only took 17 years to go from discovery to across an ocean. Two years ago, most people didn't even know what generative AI was. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Thanks, Elliot. I'm gonna chime in here for our next event on the timeline. All right, we're gonna fast forward to the 1950s and talk about what everyone seems to be talking about right now, which is nuclear fission and the atom bomb being heralded as the end of humanity. Uh, if you read the news, if you watch television, if you're a fan of Christopher Nolan movies, if you listen to other podcasts, then you know that AI is being framed this way too, right? Discovery of nuclear fission led to an arms race between the West and the East, one whose fallout, pun intended, we still see playing out in contemporary geopolitics. For example, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? That is the legacy of the Cold War, which essentially started uh, with the end of World War II and the discovery of nuclear fission. So there's also an AI race happening right now, but instead of between nation states, it may be happening between nation states, we're just not aware of it yet, <laughs> but it's happening between private companies, right? Despite horrific destruction, the nuclear bomb ended World War II and arguably prevented further loss of human life. But with great power comes great responsibility. And as we all know, Robert Oppenheimer famously protested the continuation of work on the hydrogen bomb and subsequently had his security clearance revoked. All of this history leads me to wonder, are we creating spaces in our industries, in our companies, where people like Oppenheimer can safely and impartially question the ethics of technological advancement and its implications? With AI specifically, are we building equitable systems or are we simply digitizing existing bias structures, right? Most recently in the news, a bunch of companies committed to policing themselves, right? Essentially in the AI space. And everyone's alarm bells are going off being like, how can you possibly do that, right? That's misaligned incentives, that's a conflict of interest. But it's not just because they're for-profit companies, right? I think we have to think about every single organization, including the government, and having a sort of, not just a bipartisan, but a multidisciplinary, multi-stakeholder, engagement when it comes to thinking about these big, big questions. It can't be a silo between public and private, between profit and not-for-profit. And we need to be, we need to be coming together and not just accepting that we're, we are big enough to police ourselves in these spaces. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the challenges that we're going to see is that the advancement is going to go to the highest bidder. And I think that's one of the biggest differences between the advent of AI and the bomb is that is was that decoupling of the work being done on it from the nation state to private industry and the consolidation of private industry and associated wealth and investment going into the development of these things. That's a tough nut to crack. And I think that's the biggest difference there. And we've seen time and again, organizations or industries Let's just say they have a less than stellar track record policing themselves. Right. And to your point, Elliot, with the accumulation of, of tech, big tech wealth, right? I mean, it represents 20% of the gains on the S&P 500. 
right? So what is the White House going to do really to police those big players without having a major Im- impact on the broader economy, right? We've kind right. of painted ourselves into a corner. Right, right. Well, that's what happens when power is consolidated to shareholders and not citizenry. But anyway, that's a really heavy topic. I do think that your your fallout pun might have bombed. <laughs> I'm silently laughing. Silently <laughs> laughing inside. I th- I still think there's one more to to hit on it. I'd love to hit on it. And I I I love doing this podcast with you because I get to go down random rabbit holes and find out things like, you know, shady AF scribes from the early Renaissance. So <laughs> I started thinking about this topic and I thought it was really good because it kind of landed right around when we were coming up in in high school, which was the the cutover to machine readable data storage as the the driving way or or digitally storing data as the driving way of, of storing data. And there's some debate about what constitutes the beginning of the digital age when when storing data digitally became more cost effective, which was around 1996 or when the majority of data produced by the world was produced digitally as opposed to through analog sources, which happened around 2002. It's estimated to have happened around 2002. For my bet, it kicked off when it became more cost-effective because capitalism. And then the latter wouldn't have even occurred anyway if not for the former. So in the end, though, it doesn't really matter which. Given the timescales that we've been talking about here today, what is the relative inconsequential period between those two events, six years? The result is the same. The digital age came about when we were going to prom. So we were all listening to Eve 6 when this was happening around us. When we were when we were crying mascara stains in the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, I, how did you know what I was doing on prom night? <laughs> oh, story for another time. Story for another time. So, so let's put this in perspective. In 2020, we created 59 humanity globally created 59 zettabytes of data. Now, a zettabyte is eight sextillion bits, or one quadrillion <laughs> megabytes. Now let's put that in even more fun context. Let's say a regular photo from a smartphone, from my smartphone, uh, is 3.3 megabytes. If I were to take a picture every second, I'd have to have started millions of years, millions of years before Lucy walked the earth. Who's Lucy? It's the it's the first hominid species that we have uh... record evidential record of. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry. Just uh, my history major didn't go that far back. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. That's my, more like anthropology. My, my dad has my dad has a weird anthropology obsession, and so like he would spend dinners telling us about the different hominid species. Anyway, <laughs> that is so bizarre. Little insight into my world. You'd have to Thanks start millions of years before Lucy even walked the earth to take enough pictures to make up the data that we created in 2020 alone. So all of that digital storage allowed us to start doing analytics at a scale we've never seen. 
So the use of analytics have become ubiquitous and provide tons of opportunities for exploitation. So for example, your targeted Facebook ads and, and other social media advertising that gets targeted directly at you because of big data analytics, or how politicians have been able to use big data analytics to gerrymander the heck out of their districts to ensure that they stay in power. And we've seen that exploitation happen in parallel with altruism, such as the case of citizen sleuths who use their access to public data sets to hold those in power accountable. There's a great TikToker out there that uses the stock purchase history of members of Congress, correlates that to their public votes, and then correlates that to contract award information by the federal government to hold our elected leaders accountable. It's a fantastic TikTok. You should follow it. You'll become rich off the stock market just by following our, our representatives, investing them in the same way they do. And so the rise of digital storage has led to an age of data analytics that has allowed for, in combination with advances in computing power, the advent of useful artificial intelligence. So similarly, we'll see Gen AI be used for good. For example, I use it every day for my small business. We will also see it used <laughs> for nefarious purposes. There are plenty of AI experts out there concerned about the effects, for instance, of generative AI further pushing propaganda and disinformation through deep fakes. I mean, everybody's very nervous about this upcoming election cycle. Yeah, I kind of wish I didn't have electricity just for like a year. Just, <laughs> <laughs> like that's how badly I want to avoid. What, and, certain, and miss out, miss out on the days. trials? <laughs> oh. Yeah, we, we I, came I up totally for lost the thread of this conversation, but that's okay. Listeners, stick with us because this pod is going to get even better when our guest joins after the break. But before that, I just wanted to recommend a couple of articles for you. If you want to go down the, the nerd wormhole with us, we'll paste them in the show notes of this episode. So if you're intrigued by this topic, drawing parallels between the history and the present and its implications for the future, highly recommend an oldie but a goodie from the November 2013 issue of The Atlantic, 50 Greatest Breakthroughs Since the Wheel by James Fallows. And then there have been a slew of fantastic essays recently in the Wall Street Journal, but one of my favorites really aligned with the topic of this pod today, David Nuremberg's essay from the July 15th, 2023 edition titled J. Robert Oppenheimer's Defense of Humanity. Uh, I would also like to put in a plug, take the time, go and read Johannes Trithemius and his seminal work in praise of scribes. We'll be sure to include a PDF of it in the show notes. It's really good. Take a, take a read. I'm actually going to add that to my bedtime things that'll put me to sleep list. So thanks for sharing. Yeah. So again, we'll link to those articles in the show notes and we hope our nerd journey hasn't turned you off so much that you don't want to listen to our amazing interview because it freaking rocks. So coming up after the break, we're going to be joined by Dr. Joel Gordon of UW Health. He's the CMIO there. Really excited about this conversation. We had a blast talking with him. Can't wait for you all to hear it. Coming up after this. Tired of battling the dark forces of incompatibility in your medical record realm? Fear not for we bring you the ultimate electronic medical record-keeping solution, EHR Connecticus. Bid farewell to the days of incomplete medical histories 
data silos, and tedious reconciliation workflows. EHR Connecticus annihilates firewalls and vaporizes data encryption to seamlessly unite all health information into a single system. Unplug that fax machine, finally, and set aside that tome of outside paper records. Relish in the harmony and the power that only EHR Connecticus can bring. One platform to rule them all. One platform to find them. One platform to bring them all and in the dark web find them. EHR Connecticus is HIPAA and Hungry Hungry HIPAA compliant. To access your 30-day Nothing in Life is Risk-Free trial, fax your name and favorite JRR token quote to 1-800-CON-NECT. That's 1-800-CON-NECT. Let's connect. Welcome back to Tech It to the Limit listeners. I'm so excited to introduce you to our guest today, the Dr. Joel Gordon, primary care physician, informatics expert, and the master of mirth. As a board certified family medicine physician and 90s fashion icon, Dr. Gordon has been curing ailments and sporting Zubaz pants in equal measure since 1998. Not content with just saving human lives and looking amazing while doing it, this fly guy recently donned the mantle of Chief Medical Information Officer at UW Health and the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, an incredibly long title for someone whose job is to make healthcare better through technology. Who knew you could wield a stethoscope, a dictaphone, and a wand simultaneously? In his limitless free time, Dr. Gordon conducts research on how to drive and sustain clinician adoption of digital technologies with more gusto than my kid in a candy shop. But wait, his greatest achievement yet is having cracked the code on how to use electronic health record data to promote physician well-being. On his next assignment, Dr. Gordon will visit the Holy Land and broker peace between the Israelites and the Palestinians with a mere wave of his kerchief. So next time you're in Madtown, aka Madison, Wisconsin, keep an eye out for the health tech matchmaker himself, Dr. Joel Gordon. Welcome, Joel. May I call you Joel? Yeah, Sarah, absolutely. I, I, that, that's quite an introduction. Uh, I, I hope I can live up to the hype. <laughs> um, so, Joel, we like to kick things off on the show with just your favorite dad joke making an assumption about you. You shared your pronouns with us ahead of the meeting. You look about the age where you might have some kids. Do you have any dad jokes? I do. I do. I have three kids. They're out of the house, so it gives me a lot of time to curate my dad joke library. But I've just picked that one. I could go to two or three today if you want. But my wife, uh, she's a weird saver. She's a pack rat. She put a ball of yarn in our safety deposit box. Isn't that interesting? For like a half second, I was like, what? Your wife's really bizarre. She is. She's I have to really give you kudos because you you did a real dad thing there by allowing the joke to breathe and come to life organically. It it caught you by surprise. Yeah. Yeah. You get to give things space, particularly when you're talking about health tech. It needs to give it space. You have to give it to people, let them play for a while before you help them, before you interject, before you explain things, let them mm-hmm. kind of play a little bit. So space is important. Yeah. I'm, I'm thankful that you recognize the space I gave you. Well, I am a, we are dad joke aficionados here at Take It to the Limit. So I appreciate it. So Joel, 
I spent a lot of time on the provider side and in health IT, and so I got to know a lot of physicians. I got to know a lot of uh, physician informaticists. But tell me about your day job. What does a CMI do? What does a day-to-day look like? And do you do you get to wear a badge or a sash or a gavel? What is what is the exciting thing that you get to do as part of your job as CMIO? Well, you're joking because, I mean, I've worn all those things. I've actually worn a green vest or an orange lanyard. But truly, I think for the most part, you're wearing a target. That's a a joke. I mean, it does feel some (laughs) days like I'm wearing a target. But, you know, it breaks down to the the, the acronym, the chief. You're kind of a leader, and there's many different types of leaders. I I find myself as a servant leader. That's why I went into informatics. I can expand on that later. Medical, obviously, it's it's important to be able to eat what you're cooking. So you have, for the most part, I mean, there are CMIOs that are 100% non-clinical, but most of the CMIOs I hang around with at least dabble still in 20%, 40%, 60% of clinical practice because it really gives you, when you're having those hard conversations, it's really important that you're eating what you're cooking. So that's the M, the I is informatics. And oh, we don't have days together where I could talk about what is informatics. And informatics is, comes in lots of different flavors. It's like saying, what are you? I'm a doctor. That doesn't really, I mean, are you an ER doctor? You can break down, you know, to specialties and subspecialties in clinical medicine. You actually now, after 10 years of informatics growing and growing, you can see specialties and subspecialties. People's heart and brains will take them into a different space in informatics, and they may not have nothing related to the previous informaticists you, you've known. So, but I'm an applied medical informaticist. So uh, for me, it's just really taking the day-to-day work, really focusing on the people. I mean, you can, you know, platform process or people. I'm all about the people. I'll, 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 I'll spend my last day taking care of the people when it comes to informatics. And the last thing is an officer. Well, you know, that's making orders and receiving orders. You know. So that's what a, a CMIO is, is really that. And, you know, are you impl- implementing something? Are you maintaining something and observing? Are you, you know, there's our day job is so interesting. I love doing informatics because not only is there diversity within informatics, my day has incredible amount of diversity. From the morning, I can be dealing with a pediatrician, and then I'm in the ICU trying to work with something. Then I'm back in the, you know, in the home care sphere. It's just all over the place. So it's super exciting field. Joel, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question about your field a little bit more because I think it's helpful for our listeners to appreciate the specialization of informatics and really what that means as we talk about digital transformation in healthcare, like what is the role that informatics can play and the expertise you can bring to the table? Obviously, we all know that clinician input is is vital, right? But maybe could you explain to our listeners that aren't maybe that haven't achieved your level of nerdery yet, what what is informatics as a field and what does it bring to the table at this moment in time in the healthcare industry? Well, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the elevator speech for telling what is informatics, it's really the study of data, the data systems, and how those data and data systems influence the activities of human be- human beings, the behaviors. So really, it is kind of soup to nuts data science. Okay, I mean, it really is. It's everything in between. And like I said, for me in, in applied medicine, you know, a lot of informaticists are out there discovering and discovering the next big thing or the next shiny thing. And those are two different things. You know, the next big thing is earth shattering. The next big shiny thing is kind of budget shattering or 
organization shattering or efficiency shattering or spirit shattering. I mean, there's good and bad things that are coming with tech. That's not me. I'm not really interested in scratching. Uh, yes, we do some invest. I can tell you about some really cool cutting edge stuff that we're doing. I do that because that's a necessity of the organization needs, but it's not where I get my day from is a light bulb going off for someone or someone figuring out an efficiency or more importantly, what I really get excited about is when clinical decision support, because making the right evidence occur at the right time in the right place to the right person and all that stuff is absolutely, it'll blow your brain how complicated that is, but it also blow your brain when you get it right. It's so, so thrilling to be able to use evidence-based medicine. I mean, I spent the first 15 years of my career saying, in my opinion, I think we better do this, that, and other thing. My opinion doesn't isn't worth squat. I don't care what my opinion is. Is what I if I was a patient, I said I don't care what your opinion says. What am I supposed to do? Okay, and so that's where we need to. We've moved into evidence based medicine, and from there, shared decision making and evidence based. And now we're trying to figure out how do we engineer that to be automated, shared, evidence based decision making. So it's a whole linear growth of iterative kind of revelations that medicine has had to itself. I mean, I really feel almost like we as informaticists get to pretend at times that we're Alexander Fleming with diet, with antibiotics. We're discovering things, you know, about not the discovery, but what about medicine? About where is medicine's next frontier? It's clearly in 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 this stuff that digital health and, and data science. And you're going to give away the data for free too, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing is, yeah, yeah, exactly. The other thing is, is that we we celebrate uh, Dr. Fleming, but there's, you know, tons of doctors that died before that because they were eating poison mushrooms, you know, and we have to remember them. Are we the people eating the poison mushrooms? Or are we developing the next uh, uh, antibiotic? I don't know at times. So, well, speaking of the trial and error of science, AI deployment in healthcare is a big topic of conversation these days. I don't know if you've heard of this thing called AI and how it might be applied <laughs> in healthcare. Given your work in EHR adoption and driving physician confidence in the tools that they've been given and how EMRs came to be in the proliferated state that they're in now, what parallels do you see between the advent of the, the electronic health record and today's advent and proliferation of artificial intelligence? And specifically, what applications of AI do you see as being most beneficial to the physician experience? Oh, to the physician experience. Yeah. I, I, I first kind of thought when you're going to ask that question, we were going to talk a little bit about like what is going to be most impactful generally. But if we're going to talk about physician experience, I'm going to talk about the AI that's going to be associated with ambient listening, that that's going to change the, that's going to change the experience. Okay. And, and what I mean by that is AI's really kind of a little bit of a buzzword and, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it is really imprecise when we say that, I mean, what it is, what it is. And I'm not, I'm actually, one of my biggest qualities is I can be very willing to look silly. I can be very, very willing to make a mistake. I can be very willing to fail and fail fast. That's where I've gotten where I am because I'm willing to be embarrassed, okay? Is that why but you're I'm, wearing a sequined halter top right now, Joel? <laughs> 
<laughs> well played. I mean, it is shiny. Well it's very played. shiny. Well played. Well played. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. But yeah, I'm not silly enough to be embarrassed to say that I know everything about AI. And the person that says that, you know, be very, very careful. There's probably a 5% of the people that talk about AI actually understand all of the things about AI. So, but that being said, there is a lot we know about AI. And it's not new, as new as we're kind of thinking. And I talked a, a little bit with people and residents and that sort of thing about simple voice recognition that we use for Siri and all that sort of thing. When I said the patient complains that their left ear is hurting right there, you know, it's knowing those words and it's putting it in certain orders because it understands context of the conversation. Understanding the context of the conversation is different than understanding the context of the clinical state we're talking about. And we're kind of, we've already been venturing there. Um, but then, then we have to understand the context of the clinical situation and the context of the conversation itself, speak. There's voice to uh, text. What we currently kind of use as front-end speech or Siri and that sort of thing is completely different than taking a conversation and bisecting it into meaningful data. Okay, Certainly, we can, we can generate a transcript, but that's not a clinical note. There's a difference between a transcript and a clinical note. And, uh, and when we get it right, which unfortunately, it's, I don't, I can't predict exactly when it's going to make. It's definitely starting to surface, but when is it going to break through into commonplace? We don't know exactly. That's the beauty of disruptive technology. But uh, when it does break through, it'll be game changer because the time of documentation has always been a crux. It's always been a problem, even back on paper. We, the time of documentation was problematic. Um, one thing that I, 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 we have a couple other questions for you, but I want to go a little bit deeper on this one because I, I, I like to especially ask clinicians, like bedside physicians about this technology. Of course, there's tremendous opportunity to reduce documentation burden for you, the end user. But what about the patient experience? If I'm sitting there in a well woman exam and you're asking about my alcohol consumption and my sexual activity and how many partners I've had, and there's lots of sort of sensitive topics, right, with a lot of stigma around them, or my mental health, am I going to disclose as much to you, my physician, knowing that there's this ambient technology listening in, right? I mean, it's just a consideration that's bounced around in my head. And I work in a role where I observe a lot of patient care. And I frequently excuse myself from those conversations between physician and patient because they're intimate. And I want to give them that space for intimacy. So what are your thoughts on that, Joel? Oh, your brain just is, you know, you're proving yourself why I love talking with you, Sarah. Again, this is a great question. Um, and the intimacy of practice is, uh, has been, you know, there's, there's, there's a sanctified space, frankly, and that's the privilege of doing medicine. That's what I've loved about my job all along, why I never left clinical medicine, because it is, it's a very special place, truthfully. And you can't, make a sacrilege of that specialness, okay? And that, you're what you're exactly right. So when I've communicated with companies and their R&D and that sort of thing, I say, where is the notification to the patient that we're offline? Like, how do you visually show that the patient is, that we're offline? We've disconnected from Big Brother, that sort of thing. And it was every, the two or three times I've talked in R&D spaces, it was kind of caught them off guard. What do you mean? I was like, the patient needs to see that. I can't just say, oh, it's offline. They're like, man, sure, doc. What are you talking about? Yeah, and, you know, I need to have something that is clearly marked, like a red X that comes on the screen or the device, that sort of thing. So it needs like to be with, real clear. Uh, your headphones, right? Like if yes. I'm on a call, I can see it, your headphones light up red, right? So I know not yep. to come up and talk to you, right? Yep. 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 Or at the least some sort there. of. It's, it's the it's the um, the empathy and sort of the insight into the patient experience that may be lacking in some of those companies at this at this stage. 
Yep. That's, that's yep. interesting. I wonder if that gives rise to a new level of skill set, a new opportunity for for growth, a skill set growth with clinicians in terms of oh. their EQ and their ability to draw that information out of patients, even when that ambient listening is on, even when Big Brother is listening, because a person that is in that moment of intimacy right? Making their patient feel comfortable. That's a skill set that good providers have. I've had primary care physicians that have made that space safe, and I have primary care physicians that have not. Yeah, you're right. It's a learned behavior for sure. I think that's great, Elliot. People talk with me a lot about AI and how is it going to... Okay, so when I talk with people, I'm not talking to Joe Blow on the street. I'm talking at conferences and presenting about it and and talking with other physicians in, in spaces that are okay for asking the questions. And the question I get that I think is the most important to answer is, how is this going to change how I work? Okay. And to not say, oh, it's not going to, that's not the answer. The answer is absolutely, it's going to, it's going to change how we work. Okay. Just like, you know, point of care ultrasound changed how we work. You know, there's tools that are changing how we work. AI will change how we work, both the voice as well as how the, you know, interruptive or assistive technologies work when we present the evidence. Okay. And we have to figure out that there's a technology responsibility, but there's also a human responsibility. There's a doctor responsibility of doing that. For instance, when you, you hear about how the EHR is interrupting people and there's a little child that, that drew that crayon drawing of the doctor facing away from the family, you know, we everyone sees that and, and, and talks about it. There, That has definitely happened. But there's a lot of physicians that have triangulated the data and, I, and used the charts and used the education in the every darn visit. In fact, when I'm doing my, my front-end speech, I'm actually handing my tablet to the patient so that they can correct it because I said to myself, I'm going to read when I'm watching what I say. I'm My brain is already programmed. There's a, a turning current effect or something like that where my brain reads what I said. It doesn't read what's typed there, no matter how closely I read. But if the patient is hearing me and they see it an error, they're more likely to have it. So we just kind of trade that back and forth. That's an example of physicians taking the technology and taking their skill another level with it. Patients love it. You know, they, they love being a part of the documentation creation. And it also clarifies that's actually, doctor, you misunderstood me. So it's double checking what we said, because if it's abnormal here, it's going to be abnormal there. And so that's a just like it's a tip, maybe, that people can try that are out there. Yeah, yeah. When you say it's abnormal here, you mean in your mind and abnormal there in the note? Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> We're not in a visual Famous, medium here, Joel. Famously visual medium. <laughs> yeah, like famously visual medium. Is, there, is there someone besides the three of us? I thought it was just yeah. the three of us here. Oh, no, it's just actually uh, the ambient AI is turned off at this point. So it is a very intimate conversation. Joel, when we first got the word that we had snagged you as a guest, I was really excited and I started doing some cyber stalking of you and reading some papers and things like that. Your recent research focuses on strategies that promote physician well-being in the midst of, you know, an ever-evolving health tech landscape. Can you tell us a little bit more about your findings in that in research and some of the practical applications and implications for healthcare system leaders, for policymakers and technology companies to make the world a little easier for our clinicians that are dealing with so much burnout right now? Yeah, yeah. You're talking about burnout, and that's something that requires a little bit of a pause. 
and reflection because it's super duper important. It's affecting families, families of the physician, the families of the patients that are getting the care that may be substandard because people aren't totally engaged. Their heart and brain aren't in the job and you have to have your heart and brain in the job. And so it's it's really important that we address this and it needs to be addressed both at an industry kind of, you know, level, organizational level, a personal level and, 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 and I think IT has a, you know, has a place for that too. Now, interestingly, there is piles of evidence that says the investment in training and support and the training, I'm not talking about classroom necessarily, but mentoring, classroom, elbow to at the elbow, blah, blah, blah. There's a ton of information that supports that that's a, that pays dividends, lots and lots of dividends, okay? What I don't find happening is we're an evidence-based system the healthcare system is evidence-based totally but once you start to go into this classroom slash learning slash support we lose our evidence we're not doing any sort of like outcomes very good we're not doing very good at outcomes and evidence-based application of this training so everyone agrees now for the most part you have to do something you can't just release the tech out on people and expect that you have good return but you have to support it in a certain way. And the problem is, is we're right now assuming if I put you through a system, you're going to come out better. You don't, you, you, we don't not, we're not measuring the effectiveness in confidence, the behavior change, that sort of thing. I'm interacting with my providers when I go to train or I create a training program to actually result in behavior change. And we don't look for the behavior change. Now, the behavior change might be less likely to leave the organization. The organization, the behavior change might be improvement in efficiency. The behavior change might be just a sense of confidence improvement. There's a lot of things you have to cheat. Yeah, that, that, that's the thing we have to do in medicine is that we have to make sure that when we train or take the time, if we're given the time, to train that we're looking at impact uh, outcomes. And I think that's what we showed in that, in that paper, that we showed a massive increasing in confidence, massive increase in, in configuration. There's a winning and losing way to set up your EHR. Remember I was saying there's learned things that you should be as a physician, and we know what you should be doing, but we don't, and we measure it even, but we don't try to curate people to that. You know, we, we send them out to the baseball diamond and we give them a hoe to swing at the ball. No, no, make sure that they have the right tool and the right configuration to win the game. And so that's the first thing, the next thing. And we showed also that not only was the configuration to a winning uh, settings, that they were using it, that they're using it and have being more efficient. And, and, and really, for the most part, the satisfaction, when you think of individualizing the experience, so it's one size fits no one is the other thing I'd caution. So you have to make sure they have a portfolio of options that fits the human cogs that make up our workforce. Because the difference, you've heard the word the laggard and you heard the, the word the innovator and all of that stuff that uh, Edward uh, Everett Rogers talks about. They have a different experience. But here's the deal is that we aren't in a place in our society where we can isolate certain providers and certain nurses. We need everyone under the tent to be proficient and you have to reach those people differently. And that's why I love studying with uh, what uh, uh, Everett Rogers preaches because it talks about what motivates and what activates those different groups. And so make sure that you have a portfolio. Well, I love to hear you're basically saying, let's have some key results linked to our learning objectives, right? I mean, we, we start out all of our CME education with this is what you're gonna walk away being able to do, right? But we have no idea if you actually learn any of that, or as you say, if it's actually going to 
lead to behavior change. So, so that's takeaway number one from what you just shared. But I want to um, I want to also kind of call out that you mentioned that there, there needs to be a certain level of configuration that is somewhat personalized, right? There's this spectrum of configuration. You don't want you can't have one size fits no one, and you can't have hyper personalization because we all know what that leads to, right? It's not scalable, mm-hmm. um, and 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 you can't. There's no way to um, report out on that data, but even some level of customization requires an intense amount of resources, right? From an engineering perspective. So is there some role for like generative AI to to add value in this space? And is there anything that UW Health is doing to kind of explore that, that opportunity? That you can share publicly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, truly, if this isn't, this again, isn't rocket science. I think sometimes the most simple things that are impactful are the most beautiful things. And simplicity itself is a, is, is, is a source of something to sit back and be awed by. So the simple point is, is that we think about this way deeper than we need to, okay? In that the amount of metadata and the amount of outcomes data that we are already generating about our providers that's just sitting there, that we're not curating. And people will look at metadata, metadata Find us an example or an exception, say, oh, it's sick. We can't use that metadata. And they run away from it saying, oh, that was not showing me what I needed to do. But they didn't take the time to curate it. And one of the other papers we did is we curated the metadata up against HR data. And so that we could, so why was the metadata hard to interpret? Because it doesn't have any HR data. Part-time work, male, female, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of things that tell me about who you are that can then kind of magnify what the metadata is. And so by uh, so what, what I could go on and on and on, but when it comes to software development, what's the and the software development release cycle that you if you're in software, not healthcare software, but software for gaming or what you name it, the last step is acceptance testing acceptance testing that's the last thing you should be doing what is acceptance testing it's letting the users play with it so it's after you've done your you know your your all the different testing steps of that we already do in healthcare acceptance testing is, when i mentioned it to a vendor of healthcare uh software i said we're not doing any soft uh, acceptance tests. oh sure we are we're doing it at our major conference and i'm like your major conference you mean like me People like me, I, I shouldn't be the one that tells you this is good or not good because I, uh, me and everyone that's here, everyone that's here with me are massively click tolerant and massively able to anticipate. And, and you, don't, you don't have to make it intuitive because we don't need intuitiveness. So that's, so that's I think that's the one thing I'd say is UW is getting very, very serious about um, acceptance testing. And what All does this- that mean? All this talk about UAT is giving me flashbacks to my time as a business analyst working on an ED EMR back in the day. I get heart palpitations. Yeah, I love participating in user acceptance testing, as Joel knows. I am everyone's worst nightmare. (laughs) I will literally (laughs) sit down in the usability lab and and make what you think is going to be a 10 minute session into like a whole day long experience. She teases so, it apart like a four-year-old teases apart dinner. I mean, just tear, tearing it all to I pieces. I didn't order that. <laughs> I don't like lima beans. <laughs> Ooh, your peas um, touched my carrots. <laughs> all right, right. We're going to keep this one brief. Okay, give me your elevator speech for this question, Joel. Electronic health records were first introduced in the Stone Ages, a.k.a. the 70s, and started to gain traction at the turn of the millennium. 
Y2K. Yet interoperability remains a constant barrier to clinical integration and data sharing across systems. What's the solution? Pregnant pause. Yeah, yeah, in Iran, you know, it really is. I mean, we don't have, I mean, there are city, there are countries that have um, no HIPAA laws and no um, MTALA and, you know, massively less. And, and I visited some of them and looked at their EHR and talked with their informaticists. Their life is easier. I mean, and, and what it was said to me is 5% of those people that are doing bad things out there, we tolerate it in our society. In United States society, we don't tolerate the 5% that are malicious and doing bad things such as um, um, uh, charging uh, with fraud. And so we have hyper, you know, we have those limits to protect all of us from those 5%. And, and so good or bad, I definitely, I don't, I don't know the answer, but I also do know that some of this is necessary. Some of this, you know, control, um, hyper-segmentation is in the name of privacy and confidentiality and safety and security and things like that. And so uh, we're, we're kind of a little bit of our own enemy, but we, we're in this society that really respects those things. I wish I had an answer for the, the fix because I think it is marginal, you know, it's getting less and less of a problem. I'm seeing more and more things coming through vendor-aided interoperability. Um, and we're seeing more and more standards being put out by our, you know, our governmental agencies that uh, determine standards. But it, but it is still, you know, it's far from fixed. But um, it's the opposite, I think, is not consistent with the American standard. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that back to our values and the why, because I think frequently people just like to poo-poo, like, well, it's because of policy and there's overregulation. Da, da, da. They're, they're focusing on the problem rather than why those systems are in place in the first place, right? And what might happen if they went away. So I think I really appreciate that perspective. It also makes me wonder um, if you enjoy plays by Harold Pinter. <laughs> okay, Elliot, you're getting uh, to the level of Sarah Harper with your questions and your responses. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joel, it has been a pleasure to have you on uh, Tech It to the Limit with us. I'm going to ask our final question here of you. Leave it open-ended to your interpretation. So think big, my friend. If you could wave a magic wand and solve one problem in healthcare, through technology, what would it be and why? Mm. Lots of things raced through my mind. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pivot to uh, when I first decided to go into medicine. I was wondering between being a pastor or being a doctor, being a pastor, or being a doctor, and I ended up being a doctor. Okay, but taking care of people that are less privileged, people that are um, struggling, has been something I've been able to kind of live both of those worlds uh, when I do that. And the more and more I learn about the uh, people that have um, financial, racial, uh, um, hardship challenges uh, that are social determinants, the more and more I'm seeing this stuff is important. It, in fact, I it's close to maybe even the Holy Grail at times when you look at why we fail. You know, like I've been in groups before that are the top 10% on getting mammograms screened. But if you look at the women in that same population that answered a questionnaire somewhere saying, I struggle 
getting transportation for medical care, and you just septate them out, we're the bottom 25th in the nation. The same clinic, okay? And my orders come up when I'm seeing this woman to set up a mammogram, and it naturally defaults, and we have no way to humanly refix it for them to not have to leave the clinic and come back some other day for the mammogram, okay? Why? If I went down there and said, can you squeeze this lady in? They're not going to turn them away. Okay. So, so it's just if I had a magic wand, I'd make equitable care, not equitable like in changing, giving everyone a car that has a transportation mo- problem. I can't do that. I can't get them, you know, more information about a bus line. I suppose I can do that, but I can change what I do and I can get that mammogram ordered up naturally through the system, knowing that that question she answered two months ago when she said, I have trouble getting to the clinic and not to the clinic, uh, answering that uh, through technologies, through service uh, would be the holy grail for me. Yeah, it's kind of, it kind of harkens back to what what you were sharing earlier, which is we have like this data swamp, right? And what I think what, what really would unleash the power of that data swamp and make it a data lake. Yeah. <laughs> Too many puns. It's just having some sort of generative AI tool that can, you know, search through all of that that muck and before that patient gets to you, suggest that you tee up those orders and those appointments get scheduled for her before she arrives at your doorstep, right? So she ha- she only has to plan that one ride, right? And then the cherry on the cake is the ride is planned for her. That's the next That step. stuff's coming. That stuff's coming. And Sarah gets even more exciting because there's a way of predicting that she has transportation difficulties without even asking her. That information's out there too. So uh, you're right. You're nailing it. You're nailing it. You're nailing it. That's where we're going. And I think we're going to be there really quickly. Well, thank you, Joel. It's been super fun connecting with you on Tech It to the Limit. And I hope you'll come back to the show sometime. Thanks, Elliot. And Sarah, I look forward to seeing you again. I know that our paths continue to cross and I celebrate that. Same Thanks Bye-bye. so much. Bye, guys. Adios. Goodbye. And <laughs> now the awkward's over. <laughs> okay, there we go. Like, <laughs> like, I just, sometimes I just don't know what to do. Tech It to the Limit is brought to you by the Time Traveling Triage Booth. If you're like me, you often find yourself daydreaming about classic baseball movies from the 90s while you're waiting in the triage line of an emergency room lobby. Does the triage process make you feel like you're waiting forever? Forever. Forever. Well, fear not, O oh sultans of SWAT, because we have the solution you've been waiting for. Introducing the time-traveling triage booth. Just step in, select your desired millisecond, and teleport back to a time when the worst thing in the world was being called an L7 weenie, and the emergency line was virtually non-existent, but definitely shorter than now. No more struggling to complete an intake form while bleeding out. With the time-traveling triage booth, care is delivered faster than you can say, you're killing me, Smalls. Skip the line and the pain. Hop into the time-traveling triage booth today and get home in time to argue down your astronomical medical bill with your insurance provider. For a 22% discount off your first time travel, go to whywait.ouch and enter the promo code SMORE. 
Time travel only guaranteed for line skipping, not injury or illness prevention. Time traveling triage booth is not responsible for time period specific standards of care, butterfly effects, or lost baseballs eaten by giant junkyard dogs arising from its use. Offer limited to time periods with electricity only. The time traveling triage booth. Get the right care. Anytime. Welcome back, folks. So jazzed after our conversation with Dr. Joel Gordon of UW Health. Such a brainiac and what a yes. great sense of humor. I just love talking to him. It's it's so fun every time I get the opportunity. He's a really cool guy and an amazing dresser, as you know by now. But oh, yeah. he's not really like super active on social outside of LinkedIn. So look him up on LinkedIn, follow him on LinkedIn usually shares his research there and talks about his extensive travels in the health informatics world. So check him out on LinkedIn. Fun fact, he's also on Dancing of the Stars, Mankato, Minnesota edition. If you want to, you know, just comb through the archives and just watch the magic happen. Uh, but I digress. <laughs> Elliot, we're going to order some chicken nuggets. Mm, so hungry. So, <laughs> Yeah. Why don't you just tell us what you loved about talking to Joel and then I say, what did you learn? Yep. What are your takeaways? What are your golden, brown, hot, salty nuggets? Nuggets. Nuggets. Make sure we get that out there. <laughs> Talk about nuggets. salty nuggets. Golden brown, bucket salty. Of... <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I got a big plate of nuggets coming from talking to him. It was such an invigorating conversation, like you said. He is he is a joy. He is so articulate and and delightfully humorous. He has a whimsy about him, I would say. So and he has uh, a walkie kind of floats. That's right. That's right. In person. So these are a couple of things that I was thinking about as I, you know, listened to the interview again. I like that he rephrased the the traditional phrase around deployment of technology. A lot of people say people, process, and technology, but he kind of rebranded it as the three Ps, like people, process, and platform. And I know that's not like revolutionary, but I like a good alliteration. And I think it takes a mind like his to find the right P there. I thought that his point about conversational context being different from the context of the clinical state being a critical component in terms of our ability to really provide clinical productivity tools to to clinicians, right? So understanding all the stuff that's going on around the patient needs all that big data analytics to come to the conversation, but then you also need conversational context around the national language processing or understanding, and those two together is really what's going to drive that clinical productivity. And I think that was around his conversation around ambient technology being most impactful to the physician experience. So I really want, liked his perspective on that. The little note that he had about the visual indicator for patients to know when they're not being recorded, an intimacy indicator, as I came to think of it, that's a small thing that means a lot to, to patients. So it's a really good little nugget for people that are building these kind of tools to keep in mind, to build that intimacy indicator into their products. I also thought it was important note that he made around patients love being part of the documentation process. I love being part of my documentation process, or I would love being part of my documentation process, I should say. Um, You're listening, Elliot's primary. <laughs> mm, mm, yeah, he knows what he did. <laughs> Oh, no, he didn't do it. 
Yeah, but um, how many times? That's a great yeah. point. Because like, how many times have you gotten home and you've read the note on the portal and you're like, no, that didn't happen. We didn't discuss that. No. Right. It's not necessarily the physician's fault. It's just a templated form that they have to use so that they can actually bill correctly, right? It's a systemic so, yeah. issue, right? That's right. A hundred percent. And, and, right. it, and you mean, know, his his example of showing the note to the patient and saying, this is what I got. Is that what you got? Yeah, I think also we have to think about like, like just because you you tell somebody something and then you document it in the record, doesn't mean that they heard you, that they understand what the words you used, you know, like, so we have to think about like the patient experience. So I thought all of those were just really valuable things to take away. I thought he really hit the nail really well with that, with that hammer. What did you think? What, what are your nuggets? Man, top nugget is that Joel is a really bizarre dresser. Top, top takeaway. Um, I've only ever seen him in like professional settings. So just like this intimate conversation at home over a podcast, I was shocked by his outfit. Um, <laughs> so much skin. So much skin. <laughs> his second calling is clearly stand-up comedy because he nailed the landing on the dad joke delivery. I was so impressed. Very good. But yeah, so those are top, top nuggets right there. Um, kind of like the amuse-bouche of, of my regular nuggets. I made my, my chicken tenders. <laughs> I appreciate kind of the, the, the in-depth discussion that we had about the patient experience and all this digital transformation. I think we have to constantly go back to that, even if care teams are our primary end user of the tech. We still have to think about what's the overall impact on the patient experience. You know, ambient AI to reduce documentation burden for physicians is a prime example of that, right? Just because we're trying to solve a problem for a doctor doesn't mean it doesn't have ramifications for the patient experience. I also really appreciate how Joel was just super upfront. I have not had somebody say this yet, that AI will change how we work. It sounds so simple, but like everybody's trying to say, oh no, no, it's not gonna change anything. It's not gonna take your job. It's just gonna make you more productive. It's like, no, it is going to change everything. And I appreciate how, how candid he was there. And he talked about how there's a human responsibility with that change. I'm not a clinician, but we as employees in the healthcare sector, whether our bedside clinician or on the administrative side, uh, we have a human responsibility to, to change and to grow and to learn new skills through this AI transformation of our work, right? Absolutely. And he's not just talking about how do we use AI, he's talking about how do we keep the connection with the patient, right? How do we grow our EQ, as you said? So I love that. And so many takeaways, I'm gonna try to burn through these. You can't just release the tech out onto people and assume you'll have a good return. I love that. I mean, it's so it's so obvious, right? And we think back to our conversation with Dr. Norma Padron on episode two, she works in the care enablement space. That's her, that's her field. She, she recognizes the problem that we're not paying enough attention to workforce development as technology rapidly catapults us into the future. And what Joel added to that conversation is essentially, how are we measuring success in this space? Right? Right. You can't just turn it on, right? Or you can't just do one and done training and expect that users are going to adopt it. And let's go beyond adoption when we measure success. Let's talk about physician confidence. Let's talk about nurse satisfaction. Let's talk about healthcare team well-being. All of those things are measurable when you, as he said, curate the data, 
Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Just because you have some metadata that doesn't look perfect to you, it's still useful. And, and overlay that or curate it up alongside your HR data so you can get insights into who are these people, right, that are clicking around in my system. And am I doing my responsibility as a designer and deliverer of tech? Um, am I doing right by them, right? So just loved all of that conversation. And my last final giant chicken nugget that I got from that conversation was the importance of user acceptance testing and how it doesn't count when you do it on the experts at a big conference. You need to go to your average Joe, your average Josephine that's in a workroom that hasn't had enough coffee, that's tired and angry about tech because their life has not been made better by it yet and let them play around with your tool, right? Yep, and, and tell you what's wrong with them and let them take the not happy path. Yeah, yep, exactly. So, um, man, so many, so many nuggets, not enough ketchup. <laughs> not enough, I need some honey mustard. Yeah, actually I'm more of a barbecue sauce or a sauce kind of gal, but I just said ketchup because it was like one word. Yeah, yeah, there were tons of them. There were tons of them. So. Well, thank you, listeners, for sitting down with us for another bucket of amazing learning nuggets. They were delicious and thought-provoking. I want to make sure that you all check us out on social media. Be sure to look us up on and follow us on LinkedIn. Check us out on, we're still on Twitter. It's X. It's X, yeah. We're about to excise ourselves from Twitter. We're on the Facebook. Please take a listen. And please don't forget to leave us a five-star review on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. It really does help our algorithms jump up to the top of the spot. We got a lot of competition out there. And don't forget to tell a friend of how much you enjoyed the podcast. We're going to get the wrap it up box out and we are going to read a couple of uh, health tech haikus. Elliot mentioned our social We post these every hump day on LinkedIn, and we invite you to share your health tech haiku with us. I'm going to share my favorite from the past month, and then Elliot's going to read his favorite. And then we'll say adieu. So here we go. Health tech haiku. Bites and pixels dance. Healthcare's digital leap. Fax machines weep. (laughs) I just, I love the part about fax machines. Yeah, it's very good. It's very 90s. This next health tech haiku comes to us from our number one fan and listener. This person has subscribed to early releases of all of our content and provided this to us on LinkedIn. Thank you, Tom, for your submission. Do I need a heart? I asked my heart specialist. No, just a reboot. Wonderful. On the delivery, Elliot. Thanks, Tom. We appreciate your engagement and your enthusiasm. And we hope you enjoyed this pod. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time on Tech to the Limit. See you next time. <laughs> Tech to the Limit is produced by Sarah Harper and Elliot Wilson in consultation with ChatGPT because they are masochists and also don't have any sponsors yet. Music was composed by the world famous court minstrel Evan O'Donovan. To consume more hilarious and informative content about digital transformation in healthcare, visit us online at techitothelimit.fun. And don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and across the event horizon. 
see you next time on Tap Into The Limit.